This is Chapter 14 of The American Claimant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The American Claimant by Mark Twain. Chapter 14. So Tracy went home to supper. The odors in that supper-room seemed more strenuous and more horrible than ever before, and he was happy in the thought that he was so soon to be free from them again. When the supper was over, he hardly knew whether he had eaten any of it or not, and he certainly hadn't heard any of the conversation. His heart had been dancing all the time, his thoughts had been far away from these things, and in the visions of his mind the sumptuous appointments of his father's castle had risen before him without rebuke. Even the plushed flunky, that walking symbol of a sham inequality, had not been unpleasant to his dreaming view. After the meal Barrow said, "'Come with me. I'll give you a jolly evening.' "'Very good. Where are you going?' "'To my club.' "'What club is that?' "'Mechanics Debating Club.' Tracy shuddered, slightly. He didn't say anything about having visited that place himself. Somehow he didn't quite relish the memory of that time. The sentiments which had made his former visit there so enjoyable, and filled him with such enthusiasm, had undergone a gradual change, and they had rotted away to such a degree that he couldn't contemplate another visit there with anything strongly resembling delight. In fact, he was a little ashamed to go. He didn't want to go there and find out by the rude impact of the thought of those people upon his reorganized condition of mind how sharp the change had been he would have preferred to stay away. He expected that now he should hear nothing except sentiments which would be a reproach to him in his changed mental attitude, and he rather wished he might be excused. And yet he didn't quite want to say that. He didn't want to show how he did feel, or show any disinclination to go, and so he forced himself to go along with Barrow, privately purposing to take an early opportunity to get away. After the essayist of the evening had read his paper, the chairman announced that the debate would now be upon the subject of the previous meeting, the American press. It saddened the backsliding disciple to hear this announcement. It brought up too many reminiscences. He wished he had happened upon some other subject. But the debate began, and he sat still and listened. In the course of the discussion one of the speakers, a blacksmith named Tompkins, arraigned all monarchs and all lords on the earth for their cold selfishness in retaining their unearned dignities. He said that no monarch and no son of a monarch, no lord and no son of a lord, ought to be able to look his fellow-man in the face without shame. Shame for consenting to keep his unearned titles, property, and privileges at the expense of other people. Shame for consenting to remain, on any terms, in dishonorable possession of these things, which represented bygone robberies and wrongs inflicted upon the general people of the nation. He said, If there were a lord, or the son of a lord here, I would like to reason with him, and try to show him how unfair and how selfish his position is. I would try to persuade him to relinquish it, take his place among men on equal terms, earn the bread he eats, and hold of slight value all deference paid him because of artificial position, all reverence not the just due of his own personal merits. Tracy seemed to be listening to utterances of his own made in talks with his radical friends in England. It was as if some eavesdropping phonograph had treasured up his words and brought them across the Atlantic to accuse him with them in the hour of his defection and retreat. Every word spoken by this stranger seemed to leave a blister on Tracy's conscience and by the time the speech was finished, 
he felt that he was all conscience and one blister this man's deep compassion for the enslaved and oppressed millions in europe who had to bear with the contempt of that small class above them throned upon shining heights whose paths were shut against them was the very thing he had often uttered himself the pity in this man's voice and words was the very twin of the pity that used to reside in his own heart and come from his own lips when he thought of these oppressed peoples the homeward tramp was accomplished in brooding silence it was a silence most grateful to tracy's feelings he wouldn't have broken it for anything for he was ashamed of himself all the way through to his spine he kept saying to himself how unanswerable it all is how absolutely unanswerable it is basely degradingly selfish to keep those unearned honors and and oh hang it nobody but a cur what an idiotic damn speech that tompkins made this outburst was from barrow it flooded tracy's demoralized soul with waters of refreshment these were the darlingest words the poor vacillating young apostate had ever heard for they whitewashed his shame for him and that is a good service to have when you can't get the best of all verdicts self-acquittal come up to my room and smoke a pipe tracy tracy had been expecting this invitation and had had his declination already but he was glad enough to accept now was it possible that a reasonable argument could be made against that man's desolating speech he was burning to hear barrow try it he knew how to start him and keep him going it was to seem to combat his positions a process effective with most people what is it you object to in tompkins speech barrow oh the leaving out of the factor of human nature requiring another man to do what you wouldn't do yourself do you mean why here's what i mean it's very simple tompkins is a blacksmith has a family works for wages and hard too fooling around won't furnish the bread suppose it should turn out that by the death of somebody in england he is suddenly an earl income half a million dollars a year what would he do well i i suppose he would have to decline to man he would grab it in a second do you really think he would think i don't think anything about it i know it why why because he's not a fool so you think that if he were a fool he no i don't fool or no fool he would grab it anybody would anybody that's alive and i've seen dead people that would get up and go for it i would myself this was balm this was healing this was rest and peace and comfort but i thought you were opposed to nobilities transmissible ones yes but that's nothing i'm opposed to millionaires but it would be dangerous to offer me the position you take it i would leave the funeral of my dearest enemy to go and assume its burdens and responsibilities tracy thought a while then said i don't know that i quite get the bearings of your position you say you are opposed to hereditary nobilities and yet if you had the chance you would take one in a minute i would and there isn't a mechanic in that entire club that wouldn't there isn't a lawyer doctor editor author tinker loafer railroad president saint land there isn't a human being in the united states that wouldn't jump at the chance except me said tracy softly except you barrow could hardly get the words out his scorn so choked him and he couldn't get any further than that form of words it seemed to damn his flow utterly he got up and came and glared upon tracy in a kind of outraged and unappeasable way and said again except you 
he walked around him, inspecting him from one point of view and then another, and relieving his soul now and then by exploding that formula at him. Except you! Finally he slumped down into his chair with the air of one who gives it up, and said, He's straining his viscera, and he's breaking his heart, trying to get some low-down job that a good dog wouldn't have, and yet wants to let on that if he had a chance to scoop an earldom he wouldn't do it. Tracy, don't put this kind of a strain on me. Lately I'm not as strong as I was. Well, I wasn't meaning to put a strain on you, Barrow. I was only meaning to intimate that if an earldom ever does fall in my way— There. I wouldn't give myself any worry about that if I was you. And besides, I can settle what you would do. Are you any different from me? Well, no. Are you any better than me? Oh, er, why, certainly not. Are you as good? Come. Indeed, I— uh, The fact is, you take me so suddenly. Suddenly? What is there sudden about it? It isn't a difficult question, is it? Or doubtful? Just measure us on the only fair lines, the lines of merit. And of course you'll admit that a journeyman chairmaker that earns his twenty dollars a week, and has had the good and genuine culture of contact with men, and care, and hardship, and failure, and success, and downs and ups, and ups and downs, is just a trifle the superior of a young fellow like you, who doesn't know how to do anything that's valuable, can't earn his living in any secure and steady way, hasn't had any experience of life and its seriousness, hasn't any culture but the artificial culture of books, which adorns, but doesn't really educate. Come, if I wouldn't scorn an earldom, what the devil right have you to do it? Tracy dissembled his joy, though he wanted to thank the chairmaker for that last remark. Presently a thought struck him, and he spoke up briskly and said, "'But look here, I really can't quite get the hang of your notions, your principles, if they are principles. You are inconsistent. You are opposed to aristocracies, yet you'd take an earldom if you could. Am I to understand that you don't blame an earl for being and remaining an earl?' "'I certainly don't.' "'And you wouldn't blame Tompkins, or yourself, or me, or anybody, for accepting an earldom if it was offered?' Indeed, I wouldn't. Well, then, whom would you blame? The whole nation, any bulk and mass of population anywhere in any country that will put up with the infamy, the outrage, the insult of a hereditary aristocracy which they can't enter, and on absolutely free and equal terms. Come, aren't you beclouding yourself with distinctions that are not differences? Indeed, I am not. I am entirely clear-headed about this thing. If I could extirpate an aristocratic system by declining its honors, then I should be a rascal to accept them. And if enough of the mass would join me to make the extirpation possible, then I should be a rascal to do otherwise than help in the attempt. I believe I understand. Yes, I think I get the idea. You have no blame for the lucky few who naturally decline to vacate the pleasant nest they were born into. You only despise the all-powerful and stupid mass of the nation for allowing the nest to exist. That's it, that's it. You can get a simple thing through your head if you work at it long enough. Thanks. Don't mention it. And I'll give you some sound advice. When you go back, if you find your nation up and ready to abolish that hoary affront, lend a hand. But if that isn't the state of things, and you get a chance at an earldom, don't you be a fool. You take it. Tracy responded with earnestness and enthusiasm. "'As I live, I'll do it!' Barrow laughed. "'I never saw such a fellow. 
i begin to think you've got a good deal of imagination with you the idlest fancy freezes into a reality at a breath why you looked then as if it wouldn't astonish you if you did tumble into an earldom tracy blushed barrow added earldom oh yes take it if it offers but meantime we'll go on looking around in a modest way and if you get a chance to superintend a sausage stuffer at six or eight dollars a week you just trade off the earldom for a last year's almanac and stick to the sausage stuffing end of chapter fourteen